Hello and welcome to Engagement Express, the new podcast series for HR engagement and communication professionals. I'm really excited to bring you this show where I'll be giving you inspiration and tips on how to increase engagement in your organisations. My name is Katie Siche and I'm an internal communications consultant who's worked with many well-known global brands to support their colleague engagement strategies. Join me every fortnight to hear more about the things you should be reviewing and doing regularly to increase engagement. We're in for a real treat with this episode where I'll be interviewing co-authors of 2008's Engage for Success report commissioned by the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills and described by the CMI as the definitive work on this subject. Nita Clark OBE is the Director of the Involvement and Participation Association, Britain's leading organisation delivering workplace support for good employment and industrial relations. She was Vice-Chair of the McLeod Review on Employee Engagement and continues to work with David McLeod on the new National Employee Engagement Task Force, launched in 2011. David McLeod, OBE, is co-founder of the Employee Engagement Task Force, launched in 2011 by the Prime Minister at the time, Gordon Brown. He is a visiting professor of the Cass Business School, an honorary professor at Nottingham Business School, and a fellow of the Institute of Marketing, the RSA, and a companion member of the CMI. And I'm absolutely delighted to have them here with me today. Thank you so much, David and Nita, for joining the Engagement Express podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you as guests on here. You are the recognised experts, you may disagree, on engagement because of your seminal report from 2008. So for me, this is a real coup and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this subject. Well, it's great to be asked to join, isn't it, David? We've been ploughing this burrow for... Oh, gosh, more years than either of us care to remember. And it's nice that, you know, in a sense that the topic of employee engagement is as fresh today almost as it ever was, if not more so. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And it's lovely to see, Kate, your generation picking this topic up and making it really inclusive. So uh, we're delighted to put our uh, shoulders to the wheel for whatever benefit that is to help you and this whole topic along. Fantastic. So I think it probably makes sense to begin at the start of the Engage for Success whole initiative, which was the report that was issued in 2008. Can you give me some idea of how the report was commissioned? What was the reason behind the report? And of course, it was David Cameron's government that requested the report. So yeah, I'm keen to know how that came about. David, do you want to start? Okay, thank you. I'll pass to Anita inevitably. But so, actually, it was the tail end of the government before. Ah, uh, yes, of course. (laughs) Well, it realised just how important engagement was. And they'd heard about the topic, I think very much prompted by Anita, actually. And they decided that there ought to be a report written on this topic, a report to government to understand better the role of employee engagement in creating successful businesses and a successful economy. And uh, uh, absolutely delighted that Nita 
who will outline her background in a second, but delighted to be asked to work with her. My background is from industry, uh, managing businesses, and we came together from very different backgrounds to write this report. Nita, do you want to pick up where it went from there? Yeah, sure. So my background is I was 17 years a senior official with Unison, the trade union. And then in 2001, I went to number 10. Tony Blair asked me to go and work for him as his advisor on trade unions and employment type issues. And I was there until Tony left in 2007. And when I left, I got a job as director of this small not-for-profit charity called the Involvement and Participation Association, which works with companies and organizations, particularly around employee voice. And I started getting interested in the stuff that was around on employee engagement. So the then Secretary of State, Peter Mandelson, asked me and David to work together, coming from, as it were, sort of the two sides of industry. And we spent a whole year going around the country. I mean, we talked to hundreds of people, interviewed, we did focus groups, we talked to leaders, we talked to people on the shop floor, we talked to middle managers in companies, big and small, public and private, and third sector. And we produced a report based on all of that work. We also, of course, looked at what uh, research information there was around about engagement from the different survey companies and so on. And it became very clear, didn't it, David, Mm -hmm. that there was an engagement deficit in the UK, not everywhere, not all the time. But it became clear that, that basically people were not being encouraged or enabled to work at their full capacity. And that the sort of figure of about only about a third of the UK workforce being actively engaged was very alarming. If you want a successful economy or a successful organization, you can't afford to be in a position where only a third of your workforce is actively engaged. I mean, what a waste of money in terms of the staffing costs, but also what a huge deficit for the people concerned who, you know, are frustrated and have low morale at work. And as we know, don't we, David, that work is one of the most important things for one's well-being and how you feel about yourself at work is such a determining factor about how you feel about yourself generally. So this is a really, you know, we thought this was a really, really important topic, didn't we? Yes, we certainly did. And through that work, as Nita so clearly described, we were trying to answer the question of what is employee engagement? What's the evidence that it really matters to organisational outcomes? And then what were the four things as we discovered, seemed to be present in all the organizations we went to, whether it was public or private or not-for-profit, that seemed to be present when they were doing better at engaging their people that we think of as the four enablers of employee engagement, or if you like, lenses that you can look through when addressing this topic. And they do stand still very much relevant today as they did back then. And I've been someone who's worked in engagement in internal communications for many years, still recognize them in organizations that I've worked for, still being very important, still being the pillars of engagement and facilitating engagement. So it would be great to talk about them in a bit more detail. So we're talking about strategic narrative, engaging managers, employee voice, and integrity. How do we summarise those in terms of each subject? Do you want me to start, David, and then you chip in on the... Yes, yes. Okay, so the first thing that we identified, which is absolutely key importance in engaging your organisation, staff in your organisation, was having a story. What's the strategic, we call it strategic narrative. 
you know, what's the story of where the organization has come from? Where is it now? And critically, where is it going to go? What's the aims of the organization? What's the kind of, you know, the way ahead? And the reason that this is critically important is that we know that people want meaning and purpose at work. Uh, it's very important. And having a strong story gives a line of sight between what I do on a day-to-day basis and the overall purpose of the organization. And frankly, this is not just something which is true in organizations that obviously have an immediate public impact, like, for example, a hospital. It is as true, it is as important to have a story I can hang my hat on. If I'm working in hospitality or the fast food industry or care or anywhere. And there's this, I don't know if you know the story, forgive me if you do, but it sums it up for me. When President Kennedy was going around Cape Canaveral visiting the new facility, the new NASA facility there, and he was speaking to the astronauts and the, the men in the white coats and so on. And on the way out, he, he met a man leaning on a broom and he said to him, you, sir, tell me what's your role? What do you do here? And the man looked the president straight in the eye and he said, Mr. President, I'm here to help put a man on the moon. And that sense of alignment, you know, is critically important in successful organizations, isn't it, David? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So that sense of what we aspire to be and to become, how my job relates to that, um, what the organization is gifting, as it were, is critical. Shall we go on? And I'll talk or at least lead on the next enabler, which is engaging managers. We noticed that in all organizations, there were managers who seemed to be making a better job of it. In fact, it's quite amusing in a way that a few years ago, there was a big survey in America and 62% of Americans said they would prefer a new boss to a pay rise. (laughs) So what is it that the 38% are doing that broadly we're happy to work for? We shouldn't confuse that with being popular. Uh, but who we want or are happy to work for. Um, the broadly speaking, these productive managers that bring out the best in me do three things. They make it very clear what success will look like. And if I'm very senior, it'll be success over five years. If I'm just right in and my first job might be success over the next month or two. And then they give me some scope to bring myself to the job, to add my creativity, to own the issues in front of me and therefore the solutions that I put effort into uh, into implementing. The second thing these really engaging managers do is that they treat each of their team members as individuals. You know, Nisha and I often say that the worst two words in the management lexicon are human resources. As soon as you start to treat me as employee number 483, that's how I will react. I'll do just what you tell me to do, but I won't go the extra mile. I won't own the issues in front of me because I feel I'm being treated just as some sort of human resource, some sort of cog in a machine. If you treat me as an individual, then I'll have a bigger relationship with you and the organization from which I'll offer more of my capability and potential. And and look, we could talk for a long time about this, but it's not complicated. It's anything from the practical, like, can I come an hour later and leave an hour later on Thursdays because of childcare issues? It could be a particular concern I've got about my, I don't know, ability to speak in public or whatever. Can you help me with it? It can be and often is something about how can I develop my career and have experience of department I might like to go to because it's everyone's interest that we have round pegs and round holes. So I have a sense of the organization my manager is concerned about me. And thirdly, that these good managers are coaching me literally every week 
they're not some great formal thing, but they are giving me feedback all the time. And that feedback will mostly be positive. It will be encouraging me to do more of the things that I do well and being recognized for doing them. It's also not about walking past dysfunctional behavior. These good managers don't walk past that. They address it, but they address it through a positive vein, such as, you know, putting it very simply, here's the things that you do well that are great, and here's one or two things that are getting in the way. And put in that more constructive space, then the majority of people will attend to those issues. And it's very important for the rest of the team that they see you doing this. Otherwise, the burden of work falls un- unfairly. So those are the themes, Nita, I think, under the engaging manager that we came up with. Yes, I think the only thing I'd add is that, you know, quite often, certainly in the UK, we tend to make people, promote people as managers because they were quite good at the job they last did. And that really doesn't tell you how much they are, what people skills they have, how good they're going to be managing people. It might tell you how good they are at managing process, but not about people. And then we don't necessarily give them the support and development to enable them to be good people managers. And, you know, this is absolutely crazy because as Dane Carol Black, who is the person who knows more about health at work in sort of almost anybody else in the world, said to David and myself, look, you know, if I could wave a magic wand to improve the health of the nation at work, it wouldn't be musculoskeletal type things. It would be to improve the relationship between individuals and their line of managers. That would be the single best thing I could do because that is the biggest cause of ill health at work is dysfunctional relationships between individuals and their line managers. So, you know, she was coming at it from a health point of view. We were coming at it from an effective management point of view, but we were both saying the same thing. That's fantastic. And uh, what a great summary. And (laughs) of all the four pillars, I would say that engaging managers is probably the one that is the most challenging to this day. I could talk about this from morning to night, but I shall let you move on to the third one, employee voice. Okay, so let's start on this one. The thing is this, you know, when we say to people, do you listen to your organisation? They tend to say, yeah, we're really, really good at communicating with us. You know, we have newsletters, we have town halls, we have this, we have that. And then we try and say, yes, but are you listening? I'm not asking how good you are at telling. I'm asking how good you are at listening. Um, A senior colleague, David and I know, once said, and I think it's a really good way of putting it, do you give your organization a damn good listening to? Because the point about that is this. On a kind of individual and team level, in full honesty, if you want to know how to do something better, ask the people who are doing it. I mean, after all, that is at the heart of many of those Japanese techniques. So do you ask people how to do the job better rather than necessarily bringing in consultants and so on? But it's also, there is a wisdom across the workforce because not only do they work for you, but they're also in the community. How they interface with customers? So they know what people are saying about the organization. Now, have you created a safe space for them to tell you? And in particular... Have you created a safe space for them to tell you when things are going wrong? Because if you look at every public sector inquiry that there has ever been, or internationally, but certainly in the UK, what's the one thing they have in common? It's that people in the organization always knew when something was going wrong. If you take Midstaff's Hospital, if you take the BBC, if you take Barclays, there's a a list as long as your arm. Now, what was going on in those organizations that people were not 
tweeting up and alerting senior people to what was happening. Well, sometimes basically they tried and the message just got lost in transmission. But most often there was a culture of bullying, intimidation and harassment. And people were simply too scared to speak up. But I tell you this, your workforce is the best canary in the coal mine you have. And if you listen to them and they trust you to listen and they trust you so that they will speak out honestly, they will tell you when things are going wrong at an early stage when you could nick them in the bud. And it is far cheaper to do that, I can say this in all honesty, than to bring in expensive lawyers or expensive PR people to clear up after the proverbial has hit the fan. If you trust and listen to your workforce, they will tell you what is going on and that is what you need to know. David? Yeah, so absolutely essential. Certainly in all my businesses, things were things are going wrong all the time, but you hopefully you catch them when they're very small and uh, you don't wait until the oil is gushing or the emissions tests have been gained or whatever, or the hospital is not, is not working. So um, a very, very important one. The final one, we called integrity. Sounds like a big thought. It's quite a simple thought in a way, which is most organisations we've noticed have five or six values that they uh, pin to posters on the wall and uh, perhaps turn them into screensavers and people can see them there. The issue, though, is are those values reflected in the behaviours I observe? In other words, is there a good consistency? There is a codependency on the behaviours and the values. And if the values on the wall seem to be reflected in how I'm treated by my peers and the bosses, then you get trust because there is an integrity. And when the bosses typically are saying things that you don't perceive to be accurate or a reflection of what you observe, then you get concerned. And once you're concerned, distrust starts to take over. And if you've ever worked in distrustful departments or organizations, I have from time to time, everything takes forever. Things aren't done because everyone is spending time second-guessing what the real motive is, wondering what will happen if they get behind some initiative when they look at what happened to the last lot, and so on and so forth. So things don't get done. Everything takes a long time. You've never got enough resource if you work in a distrustful organization. If you work in a trustful place where they say, the typical example, actually, is if there's five values, typically number four is something to do with innovation, Lisa and I have noticed. Something about we respect people who do new things, who take our organization forward and innovate and create competitive advantage and so on. Well, that's fine. That's good. But what we're looking for is what happens to the first person who clearly puts real effort into a new thing. And this new thing doesn't work that well. Are they offered a free one-way ticket to a far-off land? Or is it an opportunity to learn together on what worked and what didn't work and how the next one can be made better? So this kind of learning culture on innovation, this trusting, this high sense of integrity is critical. Many would describe with the very good record there's been for, for, fly, for flying. The lack of, lack of accidents has been in relative terms when you think of the number of the planes has been, certainly up until, up until recently. There is a sense of integrity in that industry that you are praised for owning up to things that concerned you and sharing that experience. So integrity is a terribly important thing if you want to create a, a successful organisation that gets on with stuff. I mean, I think this goes to the heart. We hear a lot today, don't we, about toxic cultures. And there are a lot of them around. And actually, the sense of integrity and trust goes to the heart 
of what a positive work culture looks and feels like. And the reason all of this, as we know, is so incredibly important is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. No matter how many great plans and so on you've got, if your organization is not able, willing and fired up, you know, to do what is necessary because that organization is completely constrained and hamstrung by mistrust, then uh, you're not going to get anywhere. So this last one, in my view, is unbelievably important. And it's the one that's most difficult because it requires an honest internal conversation. And as David always says, there are plenty of bosses. You know, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. And if you don't have a situation where people are honest enough to tell you, you know, what it actually feels like working here, what they'll do is they'll go on things like Glassdoor, won't they? And they'll, they'll, mm. they'll report it all there. Because, of course, that's the other point in today's world, isn't it? All of this stuff is transparent. You can't keep toxic culture a secret anymore. No, that's such a good point. And I love those analogies that you refer to with the canary in the mine, you know, being your employees being the best version of that, you know, in relation to integrity, that it's really important for leaders to speak honestly and be transparent about what's happening in the organization and for employee voice, you know, for employees to be enabled to have a voice and to get that voice heard. Uh, So many meaty topics that are included in those four pillars. And obviously we could spend a whole show probably on just one of them. But yeah, really fantastic to hear you talk about them. But they sound so relevant today. It's quite amazing that they were written a number of years ago, but are actually still being discussed to this day. So yeah, really, really insightful. In terms of going forward and looking ahead to 2020 and beyond, where do you feel engagement is today and where are we in in engagement, on the engagement journey in the UK? David, do you want to go first? Okay, well, I'll just make a few remarks. And Anita will build and correct me. Um, So when we first started it, we've got in touch with all the research houses, of which there are many, and there are all sorts of statistics that come out. But Broadly speaking, around a third of people are engaged and a third are not one thing or the other particularly, and a third of people are disengaged. And there are other research houses who are rather gloomier than that. But broadly speaking, that would be our sense of it. And it's falling into those who get this topic. So there are patches of enormous inspiration. Organisations, public, private and not-for-profit, are really doing brilliant things, not because they've recruited what classically would be regarded as brilliant people, but people are allowed to be brilliant by the way that they're treated through those four enablers we were speaking about. And so, you know, if I'm ever reincarnated, I know where I want to work. (laughs) These places are inspiring. You feel good about the world even when you're not working. It sort of permeates as said. So there are fantastic examples and there are some really shocking examples where old-fashioned command and control, my job is to catch the laggards by ever more quantitative targeting of things, which really misunderstands human motivation and certainly isn't born of any best practice uh, we've seen. So the sense, and that can actually operate within the same large company, both ends of the spectrum. So what we'd say is that it's very patchy. Maybe we'll come on and talk a little bit about the particular challenges of how people are working at the moment from home and so on. But in general, it's a very patchy sense. 
but with a gentle incline to understand this topic further. The younger generations, such as your Kate, think, I think understand this better than the older generations, which I think is uh, very encouraging. I think some of the newer startup organizations understand this better. And the more people who've worked in a really engaging environment want to go on that way. And as they change jobs or change organizations, they take that desire with them. So there's a broad sense of moving this way. It's a broad sense of society beginning to understand that the private sector needs to attend to all its stakeholders. And in doing that, will create more successful organizations into the future for everyone's benefit. So patchy, but broadly and slowly going the right way, I would have thought. Nita, would you? Yes, I mean, I think there are some encouraging signs in the sense that 10 years ago, would you say that the workforce was a matter that regularly appeared on boardroom agendas? No, I don't think that you would. And the only way they did appear was in decisions about how many staff to sack. Now, there has been a change in the sense that the government, in my view, quite rightly, through the Financial Reporting Council, now requires the FTSE 350 firms to have somebody at board level, preferably a non-executive director, you know, who's able to report regularly on what's happening with the workforce. And a lot of organizations have, you know, taken this seriously. And so therefore, you know, the issue about, as it were, the workforce, which means really culture, is increasingly at the boardroom table. And just as with diversity and inclusion, I think people are beginning to recognize that there is, I mean, to put it crudely, there is a return on investment in getting this right. And therefore, there is more of an understanding that it matters. As David said, are all organizations doing it better? No, they're not. But I think that the pressure is much more on at boardroom level to try and understand some of the dynamics around engagement and why it matters. And so I, I would say myself that there have been positive signs. Now, what's going to happen now as a result of um, the economic consequences of the pandemic, I don't know. But it has been interesting that the organizations that we've been talking to I mean, actually have reacted to the pandemic, particularly around managerial skills, in a, in a, in a quite a positive way. I mean, uh, you know, we've had lots of reports of managers who've taken very seriously their responsibility to individual members of the team, understanding what their circumstances are, you know, when, particularly when staff have been, uh, you know, forced to work from home. So I think there have been some positive signs. The question is, and it's an open question, what happens now? Yeah, um, really build on in terms of the current situation, completely agree with Anita that managers and leaders are having to be very sensitive to the fact that different people have very different views, different levels of anxiety about the virus. And therefore, if the boss is particularly concerned or more likely is a bit gung-ho, then they've got to recognise that many of their employees may be exactly the opposite of that. And they've got to create their working conditions, which is largely working from home, such that they respect this broad church of views of individuals in their organizations, which is so important for them to uh, for them to do. But working from and working from home, not as Lita says, not leaving people feel isolated. I, horror stories of people working from home for eight weeks and never having a personal one on one conversation with their manager to ask them how they're getting on and so on. So it's, again, a huge potpourri of different views, but also very, very interesting that some of the old-fashioned managers thought people had to come to work to make sure they got their pound of flesh, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and actually, they've been very surprised with how productive people can be working from home, especially those who care about the organisation, who are engaged. 
They use that lack of commute and in some senses a slightly less stressful environment. They use that to become more productive. As a lot of people, it's great that more people understand there's a hell of a lot of people in our organizations that actually start and continue wanting to do a good job if they're treated well. And if that lesson percolates through, so the systems are more about enabling people to do that rather than, quotes catching the laggards, I think we'll all benefit from it. Yeah, I love that. And I liked Nita's point about diversity and inclusion really, you know, hitting the bottom line in terms of uh, profit and the growth of the business, because it really does. And if we want to take it down that route, then perhaps people will be more observant of how uh, DNI can move the dial, not just from an engagement perspective, but also from the success of the business. So finally, I just wanted to tap into your knowledge about not only the pandemic, but also the recent riots in relation to the tragic death of uh, George Floyd and the BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, which is obviously going to persist for the long term, I hope. Um, how do you feel that organisations can respond effectively to BLM? My perspective is this. Organisations need to take a really hard, good hard look at themselves. I mean, there have been figures out only today which show a minuscule number of black and ethnic minority senior leaders across the public and the private sector. I mean, as I say, I, I just read them today, and it is a scandal. Now, because attention was quite rightly placed on the paucity of women in senior positions a few years ago, you know, gradually over time, it became an imperative to increase those numbers. And in my view, exactly the same thing has to happen. So there's several things that need to happen. One is that organizations need to understand how you know, to recruit. Are their recruitment processes fair? Or are they subject to unconscious bias? Are there promotion strategies, again, subject to bias? Organizations need to really, really think about you know, how they operate. Because at the end of the day, look, you know, we have all seen the dangers of groupthink. All right. Now, however annoying it is in a team or at a managerial level to have somebody who doesn't agree with a consensus, it's absolutely vital to have grit in the oyster. If you've got a boardroom, say, where everybody just nods, nodding dogs to the chairman and the chief executive, that is the surest way to trouble. The thing about diversity and inclusion is that the divergence of views is healthy for an organization. Now, of course, it's got to be managed. But the point is that having a diversity of view, after all, we're a very diverse society, and those views need to be reflected within organizations just as anywhere else. And I think it's an absolute imperative. And I think that progress will happen. And, you know, it, it is a tragedy that it takes a tragedy to kind of bring this issue front and center. But, you know, the figures in the UK are very, very stark and something needs to be done. David? I completely agree with that. That framing, Nita, you bring to it, I utterly agree with. And I think it, at another level beneath that, if we've got a diverse workforce, we need to make sure that we've got a diverse workforce and make sure that we're really including everyone. If we don't oh. include everyone, then we're wasting talent. And talent comes from all sorts of different places and we're richer, we're better, we're more affirmed when we know we're including uh, we're including all this talent, we're including everything that everyone's got to offer without bias or unconscious bias, but the sense that everyone in the organisation has got something to contribute to how we do this. And, and it's imperative for a healthy society to have an open, inclusive attitude, A, for the minorities and B, for the society in general. Uh, so it's a very, very important topic, this. 
Thank you so much, Anita, David. Your insights have been absolutely fascinating to listen to. And I wish we had more time to discuss this in, in more detail, because obviously your views are of interest to a wide population who work in engagement, HR professionals, etc. But we must draw the interview to a close. So I would like to thank you both very much for your time and for your efforts today. I've really appreciated it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking us. Yes, thanks for asking us. Great fun. Keep up the good work. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engagement Express. For me, the biggest takeaway of this session is how the four enablers or four pillars have stood the test of time, from strategic narrative to engaging managers, employee voice and integrity. They are now more important than they ever were. I hope you enjoyed the journey as much as I did. Join me in two weeks' time for more information on how you can increase engagement in your organisations. Reach out to me and let me know what you think or if you'd like to work with me further at kataciche at wheretolookcoms.co.uk or via LinkedIn at kataciche. That's I-S-I-C-H-E-I. I would absolutely love to hear from you. And remember, opportunities to engage are everywhere. You just need to know where to look.